We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Mark 8. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have an in in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, there is so much so much good news in this passage and I just ask right now that you would help me to get out of the way and that you would speak and that you would speak through your word and by your spirit and that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive all that you have for us in this text today. We come from so many different places and so many different backgrounds. We are all over the map when it comes to life. Some of us come into this room this morning filled with joy and a sense of your nearness and presence. God, some of us come in the midst of great sorrow and loss and tears. Some of us come just bored with life, looking for some sort of meaning and purpose in the world. Some of us come, we come depressed, we come anxious. God, we are all over the place. We come rich, we come poor. We come old, we come young. We are all over the place, but we are all in need of the same thing, and that is the good news of your son. And so would you help us to hear him now as we look at this passage together, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here, and if I haven't met you yet, I would love to get to meet you. And I just want to say that the front two rows will not bite if you sit on them. This is like, 
This is, uh, I feel like we're in a college class right now. Everybody's on the back row, but just want to invite you. You know, these side sections are very friendly. All right, so uh, I heard an incredible story this week. Um, it's the story of a guy named Will Novak. And uh, Will Novak lives in Arizona. And he recently got an email uh, with a subject line that read, Angelo's Bachelor Party. Uh, the only problem is that Will Novak does not know anybody by the name of Angelo. Uh, it was actually Angelo's bachelor party. It was an invitation to a bachelor party in Vermont. Will Novak doesn't know anybody in Vermont, and he doesn't know anybody with the name Angelo. Uh, the email that went to Will Novak in Arizona was supposed to go to a guy named Bill Novak, who lives in Brooklyn. Um, but instead of just deleting the email, Will Novak replies in all caps, count me in. <laughs> so this is a true story. So, uh, you know, the guys who, who, who sent out this invitation, you know, they could have just said, hey, sorry, wrong guy, didn't mean you. But instead they thought, this guy sounds kind of awesome. So they said, hey, come to the party. So Will Novak, he was a brand new dad. He had a six-month-old kid. He's like, you know... I've got better things to spend my money on. I can't really justify us dropping all of this money on a plane ticket to Vermont. So he decides to start a GoFundMe campaign <laughs> called Help Me Go to a Bachelor Party of a Stranger in Vermont. The goal was to raise $750, and in two hours, he had raised $5,000. The guys in Vermont at this point they're thinking, okay, we need to do a little bit more research on Will Novak. So they send him an email saying, hey, can you send us a picture of yourself just so we can make sure you're not like a creeper? So Will Novak sends back a picture of himself from the third grade <laughs> in his karate outfit. They're like, this guy is so awesome. They thought it was so hilarious. They took this picture of Will Novak, they made a t-shirt out of it, and it became the t-shirt that they wore the entire weekend at the party. All right, so word, this story just gets better and better. Word, if, if you came for nothing else this morning, here you go. All right, so uh, word gets out about this story. It begins to spread on social media. And I got so much attention that when Will landed at the airport, there was a local brewery there to meet him, and they gave him free beer to supply the bachelor party for the entire weekend. But it gets even better. Because Enterprise Rent-A-Car got word about this story. And when Will Novak, who drives a 2006 Pontiac with 200,000 miles on it, went to rent his car, they surprised him with an upgrade. It was a Maserati SUV for the guys to enjoy for the weekend. And when the party ended that weekend, the guys, all these guys looked at Will and they said, we are so glad you came. <laughs> All right, why do I tell this story? Uh, I tell it because I think many of us in this room, we are suspicious of Christianity. Some of us are here this morning and we think that if you invite Jesus into your life, or if you were to really hand over every part of your life to him, that it is going to be a burden. It's going to ruin the party. You see, but just like these guys who welcomed this stranger to their bachelor party, when you really open yourself up to Jesus, 
what you discover is that he has not come to ruin your party, but to be the life of it, to flood your life with joy and beauty and goodness. That is the radical claim of this text. You know, one of the ways that you know you're really reading the Bible is that there will be moments along the way that shock you. Jesus says one of the most shocking things, I think, in all of the Gospels in verse 35. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the Gospel will save it. Now, Jesus needs no one to paraphrase for him, but let me just try for a moment. Jesus is saying, you want life? You want joy? You want meaning and purpose? Only I can give it to you. You can look and look and look everywhere else you want to look, but I'm the only place that you will find it. It's a radical claim. And what we're going to see today in this text is that this life that Jesus promises to us, it comes in the most unexpected and the most upside-down way. It starts with a question. It is filled with all sorts of contradictions, and it ends with a promise. That's where we're going this morning. It starts with a question. It is filled with contradictions, and it ends with a promise. So first, it starts with a question. All right, at the beginning of this passage... Jesus is walking along with his disciples. At this point, he's about two years into his ministry. He has been going all over the place, teaching and healing people and doing all these incredible things, and word has gotten out about him. And so he looks at his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Now, here's the thing to notice about all three of those responses. They are all positive. John the Baptist, Elijah, the prophets. These were people who were well thought of, who were admired. And you know, that is not so different from today. If you were to walk out onto the streets of Oakland, and you were to take a poll, who is Jesus? You would get all sorts of positive answers. Some people would say, Jesus is this, he's this great moral example, and we should pattern our lives after him. Others would say, he's this wonderful teacher who had so many great things to say about love and forgiveness, and turning the other cheek, and caring for the poor, and justice. You know, even those who do not like organized religion, who have issues with the church, even those people like Jesus. I was reading this week uh, an interview with Elon Musk. And at the end of the interview, uh, Elon Musk was asked about his views on Jesus. And this is what he said. He said, let's just say that I agree with the principles that Jesus advocated. There is some great wisdom in the teachings of Jesus, and I agree with those teachings. Things like turn the other cheek are very important because as opposed to an eye for an eye, an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. 
And so forgiveness is important and treating people as you would wish to be treated and loving your neighbor as yourself. These are all very important. This is what Elon Musk says. Now, here's what we learn from this text. What we learn from this text is that it is very possible to have a positive view of Jesus and a wrong view of Jesus all at the same time. Because right after Jesus asks these disciples, who do people say that I am? He turns to them and he says, who do you say that I am? And as always, Peter is the first to reply. He says, you are the Messiah. Uh, Other translations say, you are the Christ. And sometimes we hear people say, Jesus Christ, and we think that Christ was like Jesus' last name. You know, he's, he's Mr. Christ. No, <laughs> Jesus was not Mr. Christ. Christ is a title. To call him Christ or Messiah, it's a mountain of theology in one word. It is saying, you're the one. You are the one we have been waiting for. You are the one that God promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, who would come and crush the head of the serpent. You're the one that the prophet Isaiah was talking about when he said, unto us a child is born and a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his reign and rule will have no end, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. You are the one that Jeremiah said would come and give us, replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. You are the one, Jesus, who all of the prophets said would come and destroy evil and death and suffering and injustice and who would make the world right again. Now that is a radical, I mean just in a single word, this is what Peter is saying. And I want you to notice how Jesus responds to this. Jesus doesn't say, well, Peter, I appreciate how highly you think of me. No, he says in verse 31, it says that he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus uses the word must hear twice. He says, I must go to the cross. I must die. It is an absolute necessity. See, Jesus is saying, I am not just another moral example or a wise teacher who has come to tell you how to live. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah who has come to die in your place to bear the penalty for your sins. I must go to the cross. Jesus is saying, it is the only way, it is the only way for you to know God. And this is why Jesus says in John chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, don't misunderstand Jesus. He does not say, I am a way. I am a truth. I am a life. He says, I am the only way to God. I am the truth. I am the life. And maybe you're here this morning, and you have major issues with that. 
you were here exploring Christianity, trying to figure out if you could ever believe these things, and the biggest barrier for you are exclusive truth claims like this. How could any religion claim to be the only way to God? It's so exclusive. And you know, that's a really good question. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you've never really thought about that, you've never really done business with that, you need to. This is a really important question. How do we handle this? Listen, there's no way for me to do justice to that question in just a very quick point this morning, but I, I want you to hear me. I want, I want to give you two things to think about. Here's the first. If you think that no religion can make, can, can make an ultimate claim on spiritual reality, would you consider that you are doing the very thing you're saying no one else can do? You know, to say that no religion can make an ultimate claim on spiritual reality, that in itself is an ultimate claim on spiritual reality. To say that no religion have, can have the corner on truth, you know what it's saying? It's saying that you do. Here, here's the second thing. The, listen, friends, Christianity is not an exclusive religion. It is the most inclusive. You know why? Here's why. It all comes back to the word must. Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to die. Not so that moral people could know God. Not so that religious people could know God. Not so that everyone who makes the right decisions in life could know God. But so that anyone who wants to come to him can. It doesn't matter how broken and messy you are. It doesn't matter what your story is. It doesn't matter what you have done. He can receive you. And you see, you cannot get more inclusive than Jesus. He says, you want, you want this life that I'm talking about? You want joy? You want meaning? You want purpose? You can have it, but it all starts with this question. Who do you say I am? And if you were here this morning and you are not a Christian, I want to encourage you, start with that question. Don't, don't come to Christianity and say, well, I can never believe these things because the Bible teaches this or that about this or that. No, you have to come saying, is Jesus who he said he was? If he's not, who cares what he has to say about anything? It all starts right here. Who is Jesus? But that brings us to the second point. It starts with a question, but it is filled with all sorts of contradictions. And I'll give you two of them that we see here in this text. First look at verse 34. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is the exact opposite of what culture says. Culture says the way to life, the way to joy, is not to deny yourself, but it is to indulge every desire that you have. Follow your heart. Follow your intuition. Jesus says, no. You want life? Follow me. Give yourself to my ways, to my desires, to my intuitions. See, we think if you want to be happy, if you want a happy life, live however you want to live. And Jesus says, no. You want a happy life? Live how God has called you to live. And that is a total contradiction to how we naturally think. There's a strange moment in this text 
that we need to talk about. Because when Jesus starts talking about how he must go to the cross, verse 32 says that Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Okay, Peter is having what I like to call here an actually moment. You ever said something to someone and they, their, their reply to you was, actually, actually. You know, that's like a way of somebody telling you that you have no clue what you're talking about. Jesus says, I must go to the cross. And Peter says, actually, actually you don't. And you know, that's actually not the strange moment. The strange moment is when Jesus calls Peter Satan in response to this. That's got to be on the top ten list of things you do not want to hear Jesus call you. <laughs> it's like, I think we could have like been a little softer here. Like, hey, you knucklehead, you know, or you cotton-headed mini-muffins. I don't know, whatever. There's a little elf reference for you. Um, why Satan? All right. Think back to when Satan first shows up in the Bible. It's in the Garden of Eden. God says, you can eat from any tree in the garden. It's for you. They're all for you. They're all here for you to enjoy. But don't eat from this tree. If you eat from this tree, you will die. If you eat from this tree... You will die. And Satan shows up, and what does he do? He says, actually, actually, you won't die. You'll live. See, God is holding out on you. Don't deny yourself. Follow your heart. You want to eat from this tree? Eat from it. And what happens? It leads to all sorts of chaos and destruction in their lives. Do you remember the night before Jesus' death? He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he pray? Father, not my will, not what I want, but your will be done. See, Jesus is saying in this passage, I must go to the cross. It is the Father's will. His entire life was built around obedience to God and Peter is saying actually there's a better way now I love the way that Tim Keller puts this he says sin always begins with the character assassination of God if you want to understand your own behavior you must understand that all sin against God is grounded in a refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to our good and more aware of what that is than we are. We distrust God because we assume he is not truly for us and that if we give complete control, if we give him complete control, we will be miserable. See, he'll ruin the party. Adam and Eve did not say, let's be evil, let's ruin our lives and everyone else's too. No, they thought, we just want to be happy. But his commands don't look like they will give us the things that we need to thrive, so we will have to take things into our own hands. Let's get very practical here for just a moment. Where in your life are you having an actually moment with God?
See, God says, don't have sex outside of marriage. And some of us, we think, you know, actually, actually, I think there's a better way. God says, if you're a Christian, you need to marry one. And maybe you're saying, you know, actually, actually, I think this other person can make me happy. God says, if you are married, you should do everything that you can to stay that way. And some of us in this room think, actually, actually, I think life would be better without this person. God says, give at least a tenth of all that you have as a bare minimum, and then strive for generosity above that. And some of us think, actually, actually, I've got some better plans for what I do with my money. God says, forgive those who wrong you and hurt you. And some of us in this room, we think, you know, actually, actually, I think holding on to this resentment is going to be better. Friends, God's ways are always for our good, even when those ways contradict our own will and desires. You see, you were made by him. And you know what that means? It means that your life has a design, and it means that the world has a design, and it means that when you move against God, you are ultimately moving against yourself. It leads to chaos and devastation in your life and in the life of those around us. You see, but when we live under him, it brings life and joy. Now, that's the first contradiction. Here's the second one. The second one is that in verse 35, Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus says, you find your life by losing your life. This is the exact opposite of how we think. We think that the way to a full and happy life is by making as much money as we can, making life as secure and comfortable as we can, acquiring as many toys and as much status as we can, and avoiding all the suffering that we can. But Jesus says, no. The way to a full and happy life is by losing your life. What? What is this? What is Jesus talking about here? Philip Yancey, who's a Christian author, he writes about the 2004 presidential election in Ukraine. Uh, in that election, there was a man named Viktor Yuchenko, who was, run, he was running as a reformer candidate, and he was running against an entrenched incumbent who was corrupt. Leading up to the election, all of the polls showed Yushchenko winning the election. Uh, but on the day of the election, the incumbent's party fabricated the results, and they claimed victory. And that evening on the state-run television, the news reported this. It said, ladies and gentlemen, we announced that the challenger, Viktor Yushchenko, has been decisively defeated. However, government authorities overlooked one small thing, and that was this. All state-run television had a hearing-impaired translator on the bottom right of the screen. And that evening's translator was actually a woman who had been raised by deaf parents, 
who had suffered oppression under this brutal regime. And as a state claimed victory, she signed these words to the nation of Ukraine. She said, I am addressing all the deaf citizens of Ukraine. Do not believe what they say. They are lying. And Yancey writes this. He says, like the sign language translator in the lower right-hand corner of the screen, along comes a person named Jesus who says, in effect, don't believe the big screen. They're lying. It is the poor who are blessed, not the rich. And mourners are blessed too, as well as those who hunger and thirst and the persecuted. Those who go through life thinking they're on top will end up on the bottom. And those who go through life feeling they're at the very bottom will end up on top. Friends, life in the kingdom of God is an upside down way of life. It contradicts everything that we think about how happiness and joy comes into our lives. Jesus says the way to get rich is to give your riches away. The way to greatness is through humility. The way to happiness is to seek the blessing of others, the happiness of others. The way to find yourself is to lose yourself in service to Jesus and to others. And you see, this is why the biggest barrier for you and I, the biggest barrier for us in experiencing the life and the joy that Jesus offers to us are not bad things in this world. Sometimes we think, oh, that's what gets in the way of my relationship with God. No, it is not so much bad things in this world, but it is the best things that this world has to offer you. Because those are the things that we wrongly believe can actually satisfy us more than Christ can. There's a story, true story, of Charlemagne. Charlemagne was one of the most powerful people who ever lived. He lived several hundred years after Christ. He was the king of France. He became king of the Roman Empire. At his death, he was buried in his own private tomb. Hundreds of years later, archaeologists found this tomb, and they found him. They unearthed it. And Charlemagne was sitting on a throne made out of marble, and the floor around him was paved with gold coins, and all that was left was his bony skeleton. Sitting on his lap was a Bible, and that Bible was opened to Mark chapter 8, our passage this morning, and his bony little finger was pointing to verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? This is exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying you can win at everything in this life and still lose. That's a warning for those who are on top. But Jesus also says this. He says, you can lose at everything in this life and still win. What hope that is for people who feel on the bottom. Some of you in this morning, you feel like you are totally overlooked by the world. You do not have the things that impress others. And God says, no, no, no. 
but you can still win. See, it starts with a question filled with contradictions. Here's the last thing. It ends with a promise. And the promise comes in the very last verse of this passage. Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Some of you are thinking, that doesn't sound like a great promise. You know, there's a lot of promises God gives us in the Bible. I've never heard someone say, my favorite promise is this one. It it sounds like a scary promise. Listen, when Jesus talks about people who are ashamed of him, he is not talking about people who have lapses of courage along their Christian journey. We all have those. Even pastors have those. It took 10 years for my neighbor to learn that I was a pastor. They're now a part of this church, actually. When they learned that I was, they said, why didn't you tell me? I said, well, you know, I don't know. You should have told me. Okay, all right. Anyways, getting, getting off track here. When Jesus talks about those who are ashamed of him, this is who he's talking about those who live in a settled state of rejecting him. Those who refuse to embrace him as the Christ, as the Messiah, is the only way to God. And you see, there is, don't miss it, there is a warning here. Jesus is saying, if you don't want me, I will give you what you want in the end. But there is also an invitation here. Do not miss the invitation. The invitation is this. If Jesus will reject those who reject him in the end, then the opposite of what he says here will be the case for all those who receive him. What is the opposite of being ashamed of someone? It's being proud of them. It's, it's, it's delighting in them. It's cherishing them. It's having your affections run wild for them. It's, it's wanting nothing more than to be identified with them and to be close to them. And you see, friends, if you are in Christ, this is the promise that awaits you. And it is a promise that no amount of money or status in this world can give you, and it is a promise that no amount of suffering or loss in this world can take from you. You can win at everything in this life and still lose. And you can lose much in this life and still win. And maybe you're here today wondering, well, is it all worth it? You know, is it really worth it losing everything to gain him? Well, you will never, you will never be willing to lose your life for him until you see that he lost his life for you. Jesus is asking and calling us to do something radical in this passage, but he is not asking us to do anything for him that he has not already done for us. And if you are a Christian, if you become a Christian, it will cost you to love him. But it will not cost you anything like what it cost him to love you. See, he had to go to the cross.
but he loved you so much and me so much that he was glad to go to the cross. And I think if most of us are honest with ourselves this morning, we come to this room and we're, we're, we're suspicious that God could ever really love us like that. Most of us think that God just kind of puts up with us. God tolerates us, but a God whose affections run wild for us, a God who says, I want nothing more than to be with you, that is hard to believe. That's hard to believe. Most of us live in suspicion that that could ever be true. You see, but then God invites us to this table where he says, actually, that is exactly how I feel about you. Look at the links that I have gone to have you and to be with you. And you see, the wonder of the Christian gospel, friends, is that it offers us a Savior who not only comes to give us life and joy, but who has located his joy in us. And you see, the same question that Jesus asked of the disciples in this text, who do you say that I am? The same question that he asked us, who do you say that I am? That is the question that we ask of him when we come to this table. You know, what Jesus has to say about us is far more important than what we have to say about him. And if you are in Christ, what he says to you this morning is, you are my joy. You are my delight. You are redeemed. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are mine. And you may lose much in this world, but you have everything coming to you in the next. The night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this table and for your son and all that you have done through him because of your great love for us. As we eat and drink today, we ask that you would give us hearts that would be open to that love. Help us to believe it. Help us to receive it, whether it is for the first time or the thousandth time. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.